Hi everyone, this is Dr. Celine Gounder. I'm the host of this show, In Sickness and in Health. If you like our approach to health storytelling, do me a small favor. This week, tell one friend about this podcast. The more listeners we get, the more shows we can make, the more topics we can cover, and the more ambitious we can be. Thanks for listening. Now on with the show. We as a nation have decided that there are certain people that shouldn't own firearms. They've committed a crime or maybe they are mentally unwell. So then we need to have something in place to actually make sure those individuals don't obtain firearms. We have a national gun market and we have local regulations that just aren't national in scope to really deal with that pipeline. Bottom line is robust laws do matter. Welcome back to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. We're going to start today's episode in Iowa, in the office of Sheriff Lonnie Polkrovic. Lonnie has an interesting collection. I sort of track people with um, criminal records that, that were getting gun permits. I mean, it's unscientific, it's informal, it's simply me keeping track when somebody's firearms permit came across my desk for a signature if they had any kind of offense that wasn't like minor. I call it my wall of shame. Sheriffs are the ones who process gun permits in Iowa. So Lonnie has a front row seat to who's getting guns in Iowa City. Here's one in 2011. Pled guilty to both disorderly conduct and interference with official acts. 2010, theft fifth, which means... Iowa used to be what's called a may-issue state. That meant that sheriffs like Lonnie could deny someone a permit to carry a gun if they felt they had good reason. But in 2011, that changed. Now Iowa is a shall-issue state. That means that Lonnie has to give a concealed carry permit to just about anyone who wants one. And that includes the guy whose rap sheet Lonnie has been reading this whole time. Possession of stolen property in 2006, a theft fifth. Um, that's one person. Ballpark, um, you know, what kinds of numbers since the change in the law, you know, of these permits have you issued to people who you would not have issued before? Ballpark is several hundred a year. Just for 2018, um, I've already got 140 people through May that have criminal records that have perm- that were issued permits to carry. We've seen a lot more people with lengthy criminal histories who in fact are willing to go through and jump through the hoops and get the permit to carry it legally. And, you know, the problem with that is, is, you know, when they said criminals were already carrying, well, back then, criminals were carrying, but if they got caught carrying, there were consequences. And now, criminals are carrying, and they're carrying legally. Changes to state gun laws have radically expanded who gets to carry a gun in America. And while the argument is often made that this is a good thing for law-abiding citizens, it also means it's easier for everyone to get a gun, including people most would agree shouldn't have them. In today's episode, we're going to look at how guns are transmitted, how they pass from legal sources into the hands of criminals, and what can be done to stop this flow of weapons.
Almost all guns used in a crime in the United States were first purchased somewhere legally, either from a licensed dealer or at a gun show. But as you'll see, because there are so many loopholes in this system, it's not surprising that people who shouldn't have guns end up with them. Let's start with the most basic law, the minimum age to buy a gun. We have laws to keep underage youth from smoking cigarettes or, or drinking beer, but minimal law and regulation and oversight as relates to them accessing a highly lethal weapon. This is Daniel Webster. I'm a professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where I direct the Center for Gun Policy and Research. Daniel studies how criminals get guns. Federal law says you have to be at least 21 years old to buy a handgun. However, if you are 18, 19, or 20 years old and want to buy a handgun, in most states you can, you can purchase from a private seller who does not have to keep records or uh, initiate any kind of background check. This might sound like a small detail, a minimum age of 18 versus 21, but it's a well-known fact that criminal activity peaks in the late teenage years and then drops off by the time young people, usually young men, hit their mid to late 20s. So where you draw that line really matters. This came through loud and clear in one of Daniel's surveys. He asked young people in prison where they got their guns. What was particularly remarkable is that only 40% of the individuals who were incarcerated for committing violent crimes with guns were prohibited from having a, the gun they used to commit that crime. So they were legal gun owners before they committed their violent crime. Almost half of the respondents said they legally bought the gun they used to commit a crime. The most relevant thing from that uh, study was that nearly 30% of the people in those states that, were, that had committed firearm violence would have been disqualified in states with these higher levels of standards. The biggest factor that explained why so many more people would have been prohibited in states with, with stricter laws has to do with they drew the line uh, at 21 rather than at 18. This doesn't mean these young offenders wouldn't ever have committed a crime. But Daniel's survey suggests those 30% of offenders wouldn't legally have gotten a gun if they lived in a state that enforced a minimum age of 21. Another big hurdle to gun access is price. A very large share of violent crime that occurs, or violence generally that occurs, involves people with very little money. And we know that probably in large part due to fairly comprehensive gun laws in New York, the guns there, a relatively uh, low quality, cheap handgun, uh, might go for six, $700 on the street in New York City, where that same gun would be $100 in Atlanta, where guns are plentiful. So don't tell me, because it doesn't line up with the data, that that price difference doesn't matter with respect to how commonly uh, youth or other high-risk individuals acquire guns in New York City versus, say, Atlanta. There are differences. Okay, so let's assume you're old enough to buy a gun. 
But maybe you're like some of these criminals that Sheriff Lonnie was talking about at the beginning of the show. Maybe you have a domestic violence conviction on your record that would prevent you from legally buying a gun. What could you do? There are lots of ways to get around federal law. This is Cassandra Crafasi. Cassandra works with Daniel Webster at Johns Hopkins. Cassandra says if you don't want to go through a background check, you can just, well, skip it. If you don't want to buy from a federally licensed dealer and get a background check or otherwise have your name associated with the sale, you can find someone in the newspaper or at a gun show or on armslist.com or one of the other websites and arrange to meet up and conduct a private sale where that person is under no obligation to conduct a background check or keep records of any kind. And this has big implications when it comes to keeping guns away from criminals. We see those states being um, source states for crime guns that are recovered in states with stronger gun laws or even cities sort of within states. Um, and so it, it does contribute to diversions of guns to criminals, the underground gun market, but also those guns are then used in homicide. Harold Pollack knows a lot about this. He's the co-director of the University of Chicago's Crime Lab and Health Lab. If I take a bicycle ride from my house, I can go into the city of Chicago. I can pass a gun shop that's in Illinois, but outside the city limits that faces very different regulations from what it would face if it was in Chicago. Or I can bicycle into Indiana and I can buy a gun in a totally, uh, you know, fundamentally less regulated environment, you know, where the background checks and so on are just much more loose. Harold estimates that as many as a third of Chicago's gang guns come from Indiana. Because right on our doorstep, people have access to a less regulated gun market. What we see is, not just from Indiana, but from other places that are very accessible from the city, we see a lot of our crime guns are coming from, from outside the city, outside the state, in places where it's just easier to, to get hold of a weapon without a stringent background check. And that makes it just so difficult for our local law enforcement to, uh, to do their job in dealing with gang violence and all the issues uh, that we have here in Chicago. And there's another dimension to the problem of source cities and source states for guns. It's an economy of death and misery. A report from the Chicago Police Department found that 20% of guns recovered from crime scenes in the city came from just four locations, three Illinois cities outside Chicago and from Gary, Indiana. The vast majority of Americans dying from gun violence in cities like Chicago are young black men. The impact is so great that gun homicides are driving down life expectancy for all black Americans by an average of four years. The places that export guns to Chicago, they're not the ones experiencing the bloodshed, but they are making money off those guns. Even if these sales are, quote, legal, I have a hard time believing the dealers don't know where the guns they're selling are really ending up. We need to understand that, that guns are the fundamental ingredient in a lot of our violence problem. And, uh, you know, we're just not approaching it with the kind of seriousness as a nation that we need to, to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. All this makes it sound like gun violence is a problem we can't legislate away. And it's true, you'll never have perfect compliance with the law, but that doesn't mean laws don't matter. Gun rights advocates will say that criminals don't obey the law, um, and that they'll obtain firearms whether or not background checks are mandated. Um, 
how do you respond to that that comment? Well, I try not to scream because that's my first instinct. Daniel Webster again. It's really poor logic. Using that logic, it suggests that any law is pointless. If you apply the same logic, why do we have laws against drunk driving? Because look, people are driving drunk and they're getting arrested for it, so they aren't obeying those laws. Why do we have laws against tax evasion? People are evading taxes, so that's clearly not a deterrent, so why are we bothering with these tax laws? And you can go on and on and on. Any kind of law, somebody is going to break, okay? And the fact that someone breaks a law doesn't mean that the law doesn't have any impact. Think back to the study Daniel mentioned earlier. Simply raising the minimum age to 21 to buy a gun could have kept guns out of the hands of 30% of the inmates he interviewed. The laws are also in place to keep people from transferring or selling their firearms to dangerous people. So maybe you have dangerous people who aren't going to be as deterred by certain gun laws, but the people who sell the guns should be deterred. Law-abiding citizens tend to follow the law. Everything that we know from available data suggests that these laws do matter. There's a body of research that's saying that the laws on the books and how they uh, are enforced actually matter a great deal with respect to criminal access and carrying of firearms. So criminals do care uh, about it. They, they don't want to be caught. In some cases, they don't acquire guns at all. If they do acquire guns, they try to minimize their risk that they're going to be caught with those guns, which is frankly a good thing. We don't want them walking around in public with their guns. Criminals also tend to obey the law most of the time. So changes in these laws can have real results. Take a look at what happened in Missouri and Connecticut when they changed their gun laws. Here's Cassandra Crafasi again. We sort of see both sides of it, what happens when you repeal the law and what happens when you pass the law. And these laws that sort of hold purchasers and sellers more accountable seem to affect the, the sources of guns and the underground gun market. Let's start with Missouri. That state got rid of its permit requirement to buy a gun in 2007. Their permit was a very short-term permit. Every time you wanted to buy a handgun, you applied at local law enforcement, you got fingerprinted, they had 30 days to do the background check, then your permit was good for 30 days. Once you used it, that was it, was it, it was gone, and then if you wanted to buy another gun, you, you had to reapply. Individuals in the Missouri legislature thought that that was too onerous a task uh, for its law-abiding citizens and repealed the law. Private gun sales in Missouri no longer required a background check. So then what happened? Following the repeal, in the first few years after the repeal, we saw significant increases in firearm homicide um, and, and sort of overall rates of murder. Interestingly, we also looked at firearm suicide, and we saw increases in firearm suicide as well. And, and people may think, well, you know, what, what does a, a, a purchase permit that sort of looks at criminal prohibitions have to do with suicide? Part of that is these permits can delay acquisition. So if you uh, want to obtain a firearm to attempt suicide, the permitting process would slow that down. Compare that to what happened in Connecticut when they implemented a permit to purchase system. 
So Connecticut actually passed its permit to purchase law in 1995. Uh, they, the year prior in 1994, passed a comprehensive background check law, but thought that perhaps they needed a more rigorous system to ensure that it was easy to comply. And so they passed their permit to purchase in 1995. And in the first 10 years after the law was passed, there was a 40% reduction in firearm homicide. We saw a 16% increase in firearm suicide in Missouri and a 15% decrease in firearm suicide in Connecticut. When you think about sort of the mechanism of a permit applying to local law enforcement, them being able to examine a more detailed records with more time and also the delay of acquisition of a firearm, perhaps in a time of suicidal ideation, those things all together work to sort of influence the, the risk of firearm suicide. And we saw protective effects in Connecticut with the law and harmful effects in Missouri upon repeal. The repeal also impacted gun trafficking in Missouri. And it's easier to get guns within the state, and then you start to see the crime guns that are being recovered in the state originating in the state. So uh, my colleagues uh, evaluated that and found about a 70% increase in guns that were recovered in crime in Missouri that originated in Missouri after the law changed. We actually looked at the same thing in Maryland. Maryland passed a permit-to-purchase law in 2013. It required background checks for all gun sales. It also required people to report stolen guns to the police within 72 hours of the theft. We haven't talked much about this yet, but stolen guns are another big way criminals get access to firearms. Oftentimes, it comes down to someone storing their gun in an insecure place, like the glove compartment in their car. Parking lots at sporting events are especially popular with thieves looking to steal guns. But theft is also a convenient excuse to give the police when you're actually selling your gun illegally to someone who shouldn't have one. Previously, if you had a gun lost or stolen, you weren't obligated to report that to the police. If your gun was recovered in crime and police came to your door and said, you know, we, we have your gun, who did you sell it to? And then you say, oh, whoops, nope, I, I, it was stolen, right? That sort of makes it hard to um, potentially prosecute people um, if they were um, diverting guns into the underground market. Along with holding gun dealers more accountable and banning assault-style weapons, Maryland saw good results. With regard to the underground gun market, again, we saw about a 76% reduction in diversions of guns to criminals in Maryland after the, the permit-to-purchase piece passed. Laws are at the heart of how both criminals and law-abiding citizens get their guns. Lack standards about who can buy a gun makes it easier than ever for criminals to get them. Sheriff Lonnie Polkrabek says the push in Iowa to loosen these laws was supposedly about making it easier for law-abiding citizens to get guns. What came to fruition is people with lengthy criminal records, people that are dishonest um, and, and you know, wide range, including sex offenders, are able to get permits to carry weapons. The people that were advocating for shall issue really spoke out and said, well, the criminals are already carrying and, and uh, we want law-abiding citizens to carry. And what they would not do is define what a law-abiding citizen is. Of course, Iowa is controlled by Republican governor and Republican House and Republican Senate. 
And so they, you know, they continue pushing the NRA and gun rights agenda. So there's still no willingness by uh, the legislature to, you know, define what a law-abiding citizen is. Cassandra Crafasi is a gun violence researcher, but she's also a gun owner. That's pretty unique. She considers herself a moderate gun owner. She supports the Second Amendment, but thinks universal background checks are essential to prevent criminals from getting guns, either directly or through the underground market. As the Constitution is currently interpreted, individuals have a right to own guns uh, and keep them in the home for self-defense. But I also feel very strongly that we have a good evidence base that there are policies that work to reduce diversions of guns to criminals, homicide and suicide by firearm that don't violate that Second Amendment right. Requiring that everyone who wants to obtain a firearm undergoes a background check. Like we, have a, we as a nation have decided that there are certain people that shouldn't own firearms because they forfeited that right based on their actions, right? They've committed a crime or maybe um, they, they are mentally unwell. So then we need to have something in place to actually make sure those individuals don't obtain firearms. And there's nothing, there's nothing about a background check for all sales that would violate a law-abiding citizen's right. If you're law-abiding, you shouldn't be concerned about undergoing a background check. Last episode, we explained how gun violence behaves just like an infectious disease. And today we showed how guns get transmitted from person to person, from law-abiding citizen to criminal. We saw how universal background checks and permit-to-purchase laws can make it harder for criminals to get guns and bring about a drop in gun-related homicides and suicides, while shall-issue laws do the opposite. But contagion happens in an ecosystem that also includes hosts, vectors, and the broader environment. In our next episode, we'll talk about gangs. What are gangs, really? What role do they play in transmitting gun violence? And how can they be part of the solution? That's next time on In Sickness and In Health. Today's episode of In Sickness and In Health was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and In Health.